You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, everybody, it's Ken Davenport, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast. You're now listening to a special mini-series, the Producers Perspective Podcast, live from the pandemic. These are recordings directly from the Facebook Live series I started during the coronavirus pandemic, where every single night I interviewed a Broadway luminary and chatted about what they were going through, how they were dealing with it, and what they expected Broadway and theater to look like when it was all over. So join us for this very special episode of the Producers Perspective podcast, live from the pandemic. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. What do you say? Let's bring in the man of the hour, the first guy to respond to my email to say, yes, I will do this. Please welcome Mr. Stephen Schwartz. Hello, Stephen. How are you? I'm, I'm okay. It's really scary, you know, that for the, all the shows in, in America to be down. I have a lot of companies of shows with yeah. actors and crew and musicians that I care very much about, and all of them are just sitting around right now out of work. So we we just hope that, uh, I mean, we obviously don't want to go back before it's safe, but we look forward to when we can go back. And I just hope all the shows can come back. And you just opened a show. Tell us about how Prince of Egypt was going in London. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were going great guns for three weeks, um, you know, selling really well and um, getting standing ovations every night. I mean, I know that sounds, you know, you're, as I'm hearing myself say this, it feels like, you know, self-promotion and I, I don't mean to be doing that, but, but the truth was it was it was going very well. I think the show is absolutely beautiful to look at it. You know, my son Scott directed it and Ken, you've worked with Scott and yeah. was in absolutely top form. Um, the good news about that is while we are on hiatus, um, waiting for the West End to open again, um, the cast album is going to come out any moment. So, any moment, great. Was it accelerated because of this? Did you? No, actually, and it, it was delayed. Um, we we very fortunately and providently um, recorded the cast album um, in the in the during dry tech while the actors were free and the musicians were free while they were you know figuring out how to make the set move up and down, etc. We we recorded the album then and then over the next couple of weeks, mixed it and mastered it. And, you know, we're sort of ready to go with it. And of course, then the show closed down and we thought, well, what should we do? But then uh, so we so we've been holding it for a bit. But then um, Kurt Deutsch, whose record company Ghostlight is going to um, bring out the record, uh, pointed out that um, Passover is coming up. And, you know, Prince of Egypt is 
the Passover story. So we thought like for Passover and, and Easter, which follows hard upon its heels, uh, we would as a, as a little, you know, sort of gift and hopefully a pick me up for people, um, we would at least digitally release the album. So um, I think it's safe for me to announce that. And, and if not, Kurt Deutsch will be mad at me. No, not now. No one gets mad for anything now for this kind of stuff. Release as we go. Um, that one of the stars of a television show just announced when his show was going to be coming back, and literally Netflix tweeted at him like, "What? What are you doing?" What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. It's just all uh, you could say just about anything. It's so funny you talk about Passover. For those of you who don't know, uh, the first show I lead produced was, of course, Stephen's Godspell. Uh, and we we made a fantastic album of that uh, that I listened to. Yeah. yeah. And um, someone from the record company at one point, uh, like the second year of it, emailed me in about a March-April period. And they literally said, Ken, Godspell's album sales just shot up like crazy. Did you do anything? Did you? I was like, it's Easter. It's Godspell. Because it, it, the productions, I'm sure, surged at that point, too. I guess, yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that. For they do. They yeah. do. All right. Every year, a little peak, a little peak. All right. So well, you mentioned keeping yourself busy. Are you are you working on anything new right now? Are you? Um, yeah, I'm. I'm uh, collaborating with my um, frequent collaborator and very good friend Alan Mankin. We're um, writing some songs for a potential movie, and I'm being mysterious because. The movie is just, um, it's not greenlit. We don't know <laughs> that's going to happen. Um, but part of sort of trying to see if the studio is going to go ahead and actually, um, you know, give, give a green light to this movie um, is that we have to write a couple of songs. So we are, um, you know, doing that every day. And but basically, even though Alan lives 10 minutes from me, we're basically doing it over FaceTime and, uh, you know, um, sending things back and forth, posting things to Dropbox and, you know, not, not having direct physical contact, but, uh, but making progress. So normally you, your process would be in a room with Alan. Would you be that's sitting true. in a room? Yeah, yeah. That's how you normally work. Can you talk, talk about your normal process and then talk about what it's like in this different one, if it's difficult, easy, how you're getting through it? Yeah. Well, I mean, my normal process when I'm is mostly writing by myself. And so that hasn't changed at all, but um, for collaborating, um, you know, with Alan, because he lives 10 minutes from me, I would basically jump in the car and, you know, drive over the hill to his studio and, and be there as we were working out, um, you know, music and, and um, you know, I would be suggesting lyrics and he'd be trying things. And we, we like to do a lot of stuff in the room together. Um, but, that's not happening. And that kind of thing is, you know, you, at least for us, it seems awkward to just hang there on FaceTime or Zoom or whatever. So, um, so we haven't been doing that. We've mostly been um, posting things to each other on Dropbox and then talking about it on the phone. And uh, if it really gets dire, I'll, I'll go over there and stand six feet away from the studio. <laughs> Sing through the window. Or that hasn't been uh, necessary. And we've been FaceTiming with the um, screenwriter and the director. Um, you know, it's all, it's what everybody does these days. So, Do you think but, this will affect how people collaborate in the future? Do you think? I mean, when I think back on it, I realized that, um, you know, on Wicked, Winnie lived in, lives in Los Angeles. 
Winnie Holtzman, the book writer. And so a lot of our collaboration was via emails and long phone calls, et cetera, because we didn't have fancy things like FaceTime or Skype then. Maybe we had Skype, but we didn't. But anyway, um, and then um, on Prince of Egypt, uh, Philip Lezebnik, who's the book writer for that, actually lives in Denmark. So again, there was, you know, a lot of um, Skyping going on. Um, so I think it's just the, the way of the world now. Um, and and consequently, when this virus has come along and, and we're still working away and collaborating, it isn't all that much different than, uh, than it has been for the last few years. I'm going to turn to uh, some of our, you're welcome to throw in uh, questions into the comments and, and I'll ask a few. I got one right now from Jack Ferreira. Jack, um, do let us know where you are, by the way, uh, in the in the comments. Let us know where you're coming from. Jack asks, and this is a great um, question to ask for this moment in time. It's that famous writer's block question. Uh, how do you overcome writer's block? Um, and what do you do if you feel your work is similar to another, I guess, of your own or someone else's? Um, but more specifically, tell me about writer's block and when you're facing new challenges right now. I, I have a glib and ready answer um, to talk about writer's block because one time many years ago, I was experiencing that. Um, it was actually when I was working on the movie of Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I was almost like that cliche that you see in the movies of like the Reichs that I wasn't on a typewriter and then balling up paper and throwing it on the floor. But it was like that, it felt like that. And um, after a couple of days of this, I, I, I was feeling extremely whiny. And I was talking to a good friend of mine, a writer named John Pacino. And I was telling him about this and how I, you know, I was experiencing, 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 easy for me to say, this block. And what John said was, oh, well, you're being the editor too soon, which is such a brilliant comment. Because if you think about it, when as writers, we're actually constantly switching hats. So sometimes we're the writer and we're just, you know, gushing things out there. Hopefully we're putting something out there. And then we're the editor who's judging that and saying, well, this is good. That's terrible. And here's a little nugget I can use, but I have to get rid of all this. You're judging it and, and making choices. If the editor shows up too soon, if your internal editor shows up too soon, then you can't do anything. So the way to get around writer's block is to allow yourself to just do terrible work. Um, I have another good friend, screenwriter, um, Dean Pitchford, and lyricist of Footloose, who, um, who, when he writes a screenplay, he labels his first draft of the screenplay, shitty first draft. <laughs> to give himself permission to just write bad stuff, just to get something down. Um, in terms of if you look at something and you feel, uh-oh, this sounds too much like something else, it's too similar to something someone else has written or something I've written, they, the point is you have something there and therefore you can make changes in it. Mm. Um, but, but I have been known to call someone, you know, call friends up and say, okay, I'm, I'm just going to play you this tune. You have to tell me if I stole it. You know, <laughs> bye bye Blackbird, because I, I, I feel like I've heard this before, but I don't know where. And almost always they say like, no, no, I think it's just you. I love it. I love that writer's block answer too. One of the best answers I heard, the blogger Seth Godin once wrote, 
you have to imagine yourself like anyone else, like a plumber. A plumber doesn't get plumber's block. They just, they just plumb. They just keep going. You just have to keep going through it and forget about it. Well, you, have to, you have to be willing to just put stuff down there that you know is not good um, because that will then lead you, if, if you're lucky and, and you keep at it, that'll lead you to stuff that, that feels better. But you can't just stop yourself if, if, if the first, uh, you know, if the first water coming out of that, you know, spigot that you're, you know, pumping up and down, if that first water is sludgy and brackish, you know, you can't worry about it. You just have to keep going. Do you have an example of something that you cut from a show that was not good? Do you, do you have an example of something you're like, God, yes. So many examples. examples. Um, well, we were talking about Alan Menken. Okay, so the very first song that Alan and I wrote together was um, Colors of the Wind for Pocahontas. And, um, you know, we sent the song in, lyrics and music to Disney, and they were very enthusiastic about it. And we were going to get set to record it. And, you know, all the big orchestra was coming in and Judy Kuhn was coming in to sing. And, you know, it was going to be a very expensive session. And um, and then people were going to start drawing things, which was very, even more expensive. And like three days before we're supposed to go into the studio, Alan calls me and he was, you know, shyer with me at that time because this was our very first song together. And he said, look, I, I just have to tell you, I know everyone likes this song. I just don't like the last three lines of the song. And I know we're, I know it's late, but I, I finally have worked up the courage to tell you that. So here's what the original last, I'm, it's embarrassing because they're not very good, but here is the, the last three lines of the original three lines of Colors of the Wind, which is Pocahontas singing to John Smith. Uh, and they were, um, for your life's an empty hull till you get it through your skull, you can paint with all the colors of the wind. And Alan said, first of all, I don't think the word skull belongs in this song. <laughs> Secondly, Hull feels really, really forced. And, you know, of course, I whined for a while and complained and said, well, it's such a difficult triple rhyme and colors is such a hard word to rhyme and blah, blah, blah. And uh, but then because I believe in collaboration, look, your collaborator has to be happy yeah. and it's like marriage. And, you know, you both want to be happy with everything if it's possible. So, um, so I went back and, and right, right before we recorded the song, I abandoned the triple rhyme, trying to find a rhyme for colors and did, um, you can own the earth and still all you'll own is earth until you can paint with all the colors of the wind so much better. Beautiful. Yeah, but there's an example of just like a terrible piece of writing that <laughs> that got cut. But I have whole songs of which, well, it, you know, but yeah, yes. The that end. is an inspiration for all of you out there. If Steven Schwartz can admit to that and do that, uh, so can you. Um, you know, uh, Evan Diamond asked a question here that I think is uh, is a really good one. You're obviously very successful at this point, multiple musicals produced all over the world. But it's not always easy. I mean, we tend to look at folks like you and say, wow, it just, there he is. He's just this big musical theater superstar. But it's still hard, and it's been hard along the way. 
what's one of the, Evan asks, can you talk about overcoming adversity and perhaps share a personal story when you were uh, down hard and how you found the motivation to keep going in this very difficult yeah. business? Um, it's a really difficult business and it's a really mean business. Whoops, I forgot that I'm in a room with the phone. Uh, hopefully somebody will pick that up. It's great. I watched a CNN interview with someone whose FaceTime was going, it's all fine. No one gives okay, a okay. shit. I'm assuming that, that, that someone's going to pick this up. It's late for people to call, but um, uh, it's actually my son calling. But I'm hoping. It's Alan Menken saying, "How dare you tell that right. story?" Yeah. About the How dare you tell that story? Come on, pick up the phone. There. Okay. Um, yes, adversity. So, um, yeah. With, uh, I mean, yes. I, I I feel like we all have lots and lots of adversity, and um, because it's a very difficult business and it's a mean business, um, and. We all have our failures. I certainly have many of mine. You know, I'm I'm not a critic, starling. Um, my shows and me, both of us, tend to get slammed most of the time by the critics. And um, even when the shows are successful, ultimately, you know, even even when audiences like them, you know, that still hurts. Um, and then when you can both get slammed by the critics and the show is not successful, that can that can really, um, you know really be devastating because you've spent so much energy and worked so hard on it. Um, yeah. And there have been a couple of times where I just thought like, you know what, I, I can't do this anymore. And I've stopped mm. a while. Um, really? But the, yeah. Yeah. Um, after the, um, the original production of working um, in 1978, um, I know everybody thinks of working as, you know, this hit now because it's had this wonderful life, but the original production um, didn't succeed. And um yeah, and that was after a lot of kind of tough blows for me. So I basically stopped for, for quite a while and just thought like, well, you know, I'm going to do something else. And and again, in the early 90s, um, when Children of Eden, again, a show that's gone on to a very happy life now, but um, originally failed in London, um, you know, again, I thought like, well, I, I went back to school actually for a while to um, become a psychologist. And uh, I was... No, yes, in, in the early 90s, I was, um, I was at NYU um, studying psychology, and then I got this call from Disney saying that they were looking for um, a lyricist to work with Alan Menken, and that sort of ended my career as a therapist, as a psychotherapist. But I still hope in some alternate universe that I'm, I'm having that career because I, I, I would have liked to have been a psychologist too, if you could somehow do both. Well, listen, you've said some amazing things to me over the course of our friendship and working together. And I know you inspire a lot of writers with all the work that you do. Um, let's take another question. Troy DeFore from Toronto. What are your thoughts on working on multiple musical projects at one time? And what are your thoughts on working on book, lyrics, and music all by yourself? Uh, do you uh, juggle multiples or are you a one show at a time guy? No, no, no. I, I, usually working on a couple of projects at one time first of all you you know in our business you, you have to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall because you really don't know what's going to stick um and so i think first of all out of self-defense i've learned to work on several projects at the same time well not several but two or three um i also find that it sort of is refreshing to leave one and 
go to another for a while, um, and they sort of pollinate in odd ways. Um, yeah, so um, I would, I, in terms of doing more than uh, one particular role on a given show, I would never write um, the book to, um, to one of my shows, other than I, I did adapt working, um, but that was that was mostly editing, not writing. But I'm I'm just a terrible book writer, um, so uh, I I would never presume to do that. Um, and uh, and it's and but but yeah, doing just music and lyrics is enough for me. <laughs> what do you have uh, any tips for for folks who are trapped at home right now that want to create, that want to write, that want to do something on how to do it in the midst of all this and not getting down and as every story over CNN seems to pummel us to the ground? Yeah, well, actually, as I said, everybody I'm talking to is all of a sudden very busy. It's like, the I think the first week or maybe two weeks, we were just freaked out. And yeah. everybody was just like, what am I going to do? And how do I rearrange my life? And I'm just trapped here. And then suddenly... It sort of started at the end of last, but I really thought happened today. Suddenly everybody is, you know, I always meant to try and write this, or I have an idea for something that I'm going to sketch out, or, um, you know, even to like, uh, I've always meant to clean out that cupboard, or everybody has projects now. Um, and I And I think, you know, we can look at this in two ways. We can look at it as being trapped, at a fearful time in our homes, and to some extent that's true, but we can also look at it as an opportunity that we've been given a gift of time mm -hmm. we might not ordinarily have, you know, and, and so much of, uh, you know, we spend so much of our time, I think, complaining about, oh, where did the day go, and uh, the day got away from me, and I, I wasn't able to do this, and I wasn't able to do that. Well, now you have some time where you could do some of that stuff, and if you've always meant to write something, or you have an idea, or a song you've been thinking about, or you want to, you know, develop your voice by doing you know, practicing, et cetera, um, or practice the violin or whatever you want to do. There's a lot of, you now have time to do some creative stuff. So we should, what will happen is when this is over, obviously we'll be really glad about it, assuming that we still have a, an economy, et cetera. But assuming <laughs> we can make it back, um, we'll be glad about that. But I'll bet part of us suddenly misses Oh, I, I kind of missed having all that time yeah. when I'm. <laughs> exactly. It's incredible advice. And I want to thank you so much for sharing uh, this time, uh, your time, your cabin time with us. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks again for listening to this very special episode of the Producers Perspective podcast live from the pandemic. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, do us a favor and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And hey, while you're at it, leave us a big standing ovation review, will you? And check out my Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport for more live stream interviews just like this one, except on the Facebook page, you can actually see our faces. So check it out at facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport. We'll see you there. Bye-bye. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.